Good morning. So we've got a uh, difficult text this morning, not the first one I've had, um, but it is a difficult one that uh, we want to look at carefully and we'll enter in prayer. But first, for those of you who don't know, I spent uh, my early 20s in here doing youth ministry part-time and then I went across town to Madeira Silverwood and did youth ministry full-time for five years. And there's one universal truth about youth ministry that I'd like to share with you, and it's not in the New Testament, I looked, but it's that every youth ministry is the last stop for everyone in the church before goodwill. If somebody wants to get rid of something, the youth pastor gets first dibs. Uh, so I got in the habit of just accepting everything that came my way, and I was like, if I don't want it, I can, I know, you know, I'll just take it the rest of the way to goodwill. So I got a text one day that said, Mike, are you interested in five med bins, five orange med bins, and I was like, what in the world is a med, M-E-D, med bin, and I was like, is this person a doctor or a nurse, and they weren't, so I was like, sure, let's, let's see what the med bin is, and five of them, why not max out my order, so I got these, I got to work the next day, and I was looking for, you know, what, like, what size would you think a med bin is? Yeah, well, okay, so you guys are better at this than I am. I was thinking a, me, a, a medicine, I'm like, you know, medicine comes in little bottles like this, media, uh, you know, a, a, a five of them, I don't know how big they'd be. And so I looked all over the church, they said they dropped them in the youth room, and there were more than a couple things in the youth room on the floor, so I didn't see them right away, so I said, okay, I don't, I don't see them, what are they? And they said, they're huge, they're five medium orange bins. And I was like, oh, medium. And then I saw them sitting on the floor stacked in front of me that were indeed about this size. And I was like, oh, med stands for medium, not medicine. And the scales fell from my eyes and I could see. Um, but that's what, that's what it means to be hidden in plain sight. And I was actually looking for an illustration of this and it happens all the time. Uh, an elder whose name I won't mention, but does rhyme with Goosemeyer. Um, was was looking for supplies back in the pastoral room before service, and we were opening all the you know cabinets and drawers, and they were sitting on the counter waiting. And so, hidden in plain sight is sometimes the best way to hide something, uh, especially from me. But as we look at the text this morning, we'll see what uh, hidden in plain sight means uh, on another level. Uh, would you first? Uh, I'd invite you to open your pew Bibles to Luke nineteen. It will be on the screens, but I'm going to reference a couple different things in Luke. So if you just want to keep it open, that would work pretty well. Uh, or I will be reading it to you. But first, join me in prayer. Father God, we uh, thank you for your word. And we just pray that you would uh, indeed open the eyes of our heart. That we would be able to see and hear uh, what you're saying through your word this morning. And not just see and hear, but that you would use it to uh, change us. That we would be, go out different people uh, with an encounter from your word. So we ask all of this uh, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Luke 19, 41 to 44. And uh, I'm going to be reading a slightly different translation than what's up there, but it won't throw you off too much, I don't think. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, 
had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. And so this is, uh, this is another passage where we see Jesus weeping. Now, in, this is another thing from youth ministry. Everyone's favorite memory verse was John eleven forty is 2 or 5? 2. Jesus wept. Everyone feels like, I can get that one down. Um, but here we have another instance of Jesus weeping. Uh, the other time was over the death of Lazarus. And this is as he's getting ready to make, if you read the captions just above it, the triumphal entry. And you think, well, if it's called the triumphal entry, weeping seems like a strange response. But then he goes on to to say this about Jerusalem. And so we need to explore what is causing Jesus to weep here and what he's saying about Jerusalem. And so the problem, I'm just going to tell you off the bat, is that we as humans and as Christians and as first century Jerusalem fail to recognize Jesus as king on his terms. And so this chapter teaches with clarity that Jesus is king, and then he goes on throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke, and prior to this, to show us what it means to be king. So Jesus isn't necessarily what we think of as king. He's what he thinks of as king, and he gets to define that. And so if we look at this idea, this is the the first idea I want to explore, is Jesus is king— the passage just before this, uh, I'll go ahead and read some of to you, and uh, this is just 28 to 40, so this is why I'm saying if you have your Bible out, we can take that one off the screens. Um, if you have your Bible out, you can just flip up there. Um, and when he said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you. Where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. And as he was untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the almighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so here we see Jesus called king by his disciples. Now there are two responses, essentially. They all fall into two categories here to that statement. And the logical response is if Jesus is who he says he is, the logical response is to respond with worship and praise. There's no other response. If Jesus is who he says he is, if he is the king 
of heaven, the kingdom of God that he's ushering in, he's the king of Israel, then praise and adoration are the only logical thing that follows. The problem is we aren't entirely logical creatures all the time. It seems more often the natural human response is that of disputing and grumbling about who Jesus says he is. And we see this all throughout Luke's gospel. In chapter 5, 17 to 26, he's accused of blasphemy for saying who he is. In 6, 1 through 11, uh, you have the Sabbath and the, uh, the man with the withered hand being healed. And it says the Pharisees were looking for reasons to accuse him. Now, is that a good response to seeing someone healed? No. And then you go on. In 739, he's accused of interacting with a sinner. He's also accused of interacting with a sinner in 197. And in 1939, the Pharisees, we just read, says, say, rebuke your disciples. And so this is where we find ourselves. And as Christians, we, we have to say, without the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are all naturally in that second camp. We can't see Jesus for who he is and what he is without the gift of the Holy Spirit. Scripture describes us as being spiritually dead, spiritually blind, with hearts hardened towards God. And so the second idea here is that's Jesus is king, and Jesus, we can't define everything that it means for him to be king, but the Gospel of Luke does that uh, throughout. But the problem we encounter in this passage is that Jerusalem didn't recognize Jesus as king. And Jesus knew this as he was entering. Now, why didn't they recognize him as king? That's kind of a fascinating question. And if you you read the Old Testament, you're familiar with the stories. uh, There is a prophecy about the new king coming, the one that will establish the the seed of David forever. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promises this to David. He says, I will bring forth your offspring and establish his throne and his kingdom forever. And ever since that time, the Jewish people were looking for that king. In Matthew's gospel, he shows us, in very chapter 1, that Jesus is a descendant of David. So he's from that line of David. And so we set that expectation at the beginning of Matthew for him to be this Davidic king. But it seems that Israel was expecting not just someone from David's bloodline, but they're expecting someone who is the same kind of king as David. See, David started off his career by killing Goliath, and he went on to be a great leader. And so by the time Jesus was born, most of Israel was thinking, we've got another Goliath. It's not the Philistines this time, it's Rome. So another David means what? We get rid of Rome. So they're looking for this great warrior, someone that can slay Goliath, and now you've got an even bigger Goliath in Rome, so we need a bigger warrior, right? That's where the human mind goes. But Jesus, Jesus is a greater king than David. This is, he is from the line of David, but he's a greater king than David because Jesus takes on the ultimate enemy, the enemy of sin and death, which is the only enemy that can really kill us. And so David takes on Goliath. Jesus takes on sin and death and the fall and the curse. And so Jesus is the answer they couldn't see because they couldn't even see the problem. See that? Without Jesus, we don't even see the right problem. We're trying to solve the wrong problems. You know, Rome is the temporary problem for Jerusalem. Sin and death is the ultimate enemy. And Jesus is coming to take care of the bigger problem, but they can't see it because... They're so busy looking for what they think they need. 
And so they're so busy looking for the king that they think they needed, they miss the king that they actually need who's right in front of them. And this is one of the causes of Jesus' lament. In fact, he brings this out. If you still have your Bible open, you can flip over to Luke 13. If you're a note taker, you can just write down Luke 13, 34, which is, this is still Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. Luke documents the journey all the way to Jerusalem as the climax of the story for several chapters. And Jesus says in 1334, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we see Jesus weeping over this city because uh, for several reasons and the first is that they don't see him as king because their own expectations and so that's why i open with that i had the expectation of a medicine bin whatever that is i didn't even have a visual image in my head of what that would look like but i knew that's what i was looking for and i couldn't see the large or the medium orange bins in front of me but here's the the real catch that chapter one that or chapter 19, now if you'll notice, you have to forgive me, I am going backwards here. Um, but this is the very beginning of chapter 19. And so it's, Jesus is king, Jerusalem didn't see him as king, but even his followers at time seem to fail to see him for who he is and what he cares about. And we see this in the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. And I'll read this to you very quickly. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Verse 7, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And see, this is Jesus' own followers, those who are around him, all. All doesn't mean some or a few or a noisy crowd. It means all. All always means all. I looked it up in the Greek. And... And these are Jesus' followers. And so even Jesus' followers can get him wrong at times. And so that's why we have to be so careful when we read Jesus. And I think in some instances nowadays, I don't know about you, but when I see Jesus mentioned in pop culture or the media, you might think that he has a simple dichotomy of, uh, I love the poor and I hate the rich. Now, did Jesus ever teach that? He did not teach that. But... He spent so much time interacting with and caring for the poor that I, you can start to understand why people get that impression and maybe even his followers get that impression because they see him and it mentions here that uh, here's the whole description of Zacchaeus. How would you like this as your biography? He was a chief tax collector and was rich. That's what the Bible says about this man. That's all we know about him. He's a chief tax collector and he's rich. 
And that is the grounds for objection as far as Jesus' followers are concerned. But Jesus says, no, it's not quite as simple as that. I am I, king and I choose who I love and how I express that love. You can't break it down into these simple categories that would make it, it makes it easier for us, right? The simpler the categories, the simpler it is to classify people. And uh, the, what's the, Soren Kierkegaard said, once you label me, you negate me, right? And so we, we would love to have these simple categories, these simple labels. Uh, but Jesus doesn't allow for that. And so Jerusalem didn't see him as king, but even his followers misunderstand what he means when he says that he's king. And so, the question of the day is, why did Jesus weep over Jerusalem? And I'm, I'll submit to you, there are two reasons. The first is he wept over the, the rejection that he knew Jerusalem would offer him. And it's possible he was even weeping over his own death, which is just days away. He knew that was coming. He knew that was the fruit of their rejection, that not only would these people reject him, they would kill him. The people he came to, to save and to love and to fulfill the promises made to them, and they're going to kill him. But second, he also wept over the judgment that he knew was coming to Jerusalem. And that's kind of an unpleasant uh, imagery here. It says in 43, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on, in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And that happened. In is it 70 AD, 72 AD, when Rome invaded and conquered Jerusalem, so this is, it validates Jesus as a prophet. It says it's exactly what he says would happen, but he doesn't seem to, to take joy in it. He doesn't relish that fact. And so the challenge for us this morning is that each of us comes to church every week with some expectation of what we'll get. What we'll get out of church. And maybe it's, it's not even an intentional thought each week. It can sometimes have just happen subconsciously. But you have this expectation of what you'll get. And some of us, we come for hope. We come for inspiration. We come for community. We come to feel loved. And all of those things can be found here. But the primary export of the church is Jesus himself. When you come to church, a Christian church, what we offer you is Jesus. And that's a good deal. So what we get when we get Jesus is everything Jesus says he is, not just part of it, not just the part we like. And so some of us, what we're actually drawn to in worship are attributes that we admire in ourselves. We say, I like this about myself, so I see Jesus as a better version of myself. And to be more like Jesus means, you know, worshiping the things that I already admire. And there's a a popular pastor who defines idolatry this way. He says, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And this is, um, I, I, I'm going to read to you a, a quote from a, a speech that I've, I've always enjoyed and I, I go back to with regularity. And this really captures the heart of, of what I'm saying here is the expectations we have uh, challenging some of our natural expectations in order to see Jesus for who he really is. And this is a quote written by an atheist. It's a man named David Foster Wallace. He's, uh, he gave this speech as a commencement speech. Uh, it's not the typical commencement speech you're used to hearing. It's all cheerful. He gave this in 2005. 
and he took his own life in 2008. So I just want that framework to sink in as you hear these words. And this man is an atheist. He says, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they, were, if they are where you tap into the real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths. On one level, we all know this stuff already. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need even more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your own intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your own default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. It's powerful words from an atheist who recognizes idolatry. And when I read that, the first time I read that, I thought, he's this close to the kingdom of God, right? I mean, it's, it's like, that will preach. And he's an atheist. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves, if we want to apply this text, we want to apply Jesus' lament, we have to ask what expectations do we bring to Jesus that prevent us from seeing him for who he is? Do we worship him for who he is, or do we worship him for who we would like him to be? Many of us at different times have approached Christianity or the church with the attitude that if I don't get what I came for, then I'm leaving. Or if you don't tell me what I want to hear, then you're sinful. I've heard that one before, not necessarily in those words. These attitudes can prevent us from seeing Jesus much the way that Jerusalem expected a different kind of king than what they got. But Jesus did not come to earth to get on board with my agenda or with your agenda. It's us who gets on board with his agenda. That's what it means for Jesus to be king. And so Jesus did not simply weep over what he knew would happen. See, it doesn't... That's. That's the important thing to catch here is that this story does not end with his weeping. He's, he wept over what he knew would happen, but then he confronts it head on. The rejection and hate of this world is met with the immeasurable love of God on the cross. And so this is how Jesus takes his throne it's, and his kingdom, which is greater than any throne or kingdom this world could have ever built for him. Jesus longs to be recognized for who he says he is. Would you please join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for the gift of your written word, even when it is 
difficult, when it challenges me personally as I read it, and I, I just pray that uh, we, we wouldn't waste this challenge, this difficulty, but that you would keep us in this struggle as long as it takes for us to see you for who you are. And we just ask for the gift of your Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts and minds and that you would reveal to us all of who you are and what you, and, and what you say that you are in your word. 